That new girl in the uh, band's pretty cute. I'm gonna have to get her number. It's amazing she puts up with me. That's a miracle in and of itself. But good morning, church. Welcome to week 29 of our Gospel of John series, or as it is titled, um, So That You May Believe. That is the entire purpose of the book of John, So That You May Believe. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, today's a good day to do it. So my prayer is that you will come to know him in that way. And we're going to continue in that theme of So That You May Believe. Um, so go ahead, if you have your Bibles. Um, we are in John 11 and 12, so we're going to pick up right where Pastor Micah left off. It's been a long week, hasn't it? Felt like a, last, uh, a lifetime since we last got together. It's only been seven days. Since our last Sunday, our mission team has left for India. We had an election. I don't care if your candidate won or lost. Uh, a hurricane came and went, so the kids got an extra day of school. Some people's lawn chairs were knocked over. Um, and we got to celebrate our veterans. So a lot going on. I just want to thank all our veterans and their families for the sacrifices they make to keep our country free. As we see every week in our bulletins, there are far too many countries in this world that are not able to freely worship Jesus. So we need to realize what a blessing God has given each and every one of us keeping us in this country and that is thanks to those men and women who have fought to keep it that way. Amen? Amen. Uh, we also had our Mission Impossible game last night. Uh, we had 25, 26 teens running around this place like madmen. Um, two adults running around. I'm tired. Um, we also had three college students show up. And um, I just want to thank all the adults and college kids that, that um, I'm saying college kids now. I've gotten to that age. The college students that showed up, and I love seeing our college and career students uh, showing up to help pour into the next generation. It's really cool to see. Um, but anyways, if you don't remember, because it's been a long week, or you weren't here last week, Pastor Michael walked us through Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Literally, the last verse is Lazarus coming out of the tomb with his hands and feet bound and his head wrapped in cloth, and Jesus says to him, unbind him and let him go. That was the last verse. So we're going to pick up right after that verse. And we're going to see um, and in this event, um, and I say event because anytime that you say story, you think long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, and this is an event. This really happened. Lazarus raising from the dead happened. Um, but this event has now shifted the gospel of John. All right, the religious leaders are now going to try to plot to kill Jesus. And the book of John can be broken down into five different sections. If you're taking notes, I would write this down, but I like this kind of information. You may not. Um, it's five different sections. Um, you have the introduction. That's John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the word. Then the first major unit is frequently called the book of signs. That's 1, 19 through 12:50. And there are seven signs in John's gospel. You got the water into wine, cleaning the temple, or clearing the temple, healing the official son, healing the lame man, feeding the multitude, healing the blind man, and raising Lazarus from the dead. We have covered all those. Um, the second major unit is called the Book of Exaltation. This goes from 13.1 to about 12.31, uh, which is the end of chapter 20. This section is anticipating Jesus' exaltation with the Father, um, finalizing in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then you have what is called the epilogue in chapter 21, the finishing touches. But chapters 11 and 12 
are the transition from this book of signs to the book of exaltation. The last sign being raising of Lazarus is now actually foreshadowing Jesus' own death and resurrection. But we are now into the transitional section, and we are going to see how different groups respond differently to Jesus. And you're going to see some people are going to try to plot to kill him. Some people are going to believe. Mary's going to anoint him. Martha's going to uh, serve him. Judas is now in the thick of things wanting to betray him. Everyone is going to respond to Jesus in some form or fashion, including the people in this very room, including the people watching online. So here's the question for you this morning, church. How are you responding to Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? Because everyone is doing something. Some are in his will, working for the glory of God. Some are going through the motions of what seems to be a Christian follower. Some are faking it until they make it, so to speak. Some are ignoring the Lord. Others are in open rebellion and considered an enemy of God. So what I want you to do is keep that question in the back of your mind this morning as we walk through these verses. How are we responding to Jesus? What are we doing with him? How are you responding? Because we have a good bit of reading this morning. Um, you can go ahead and stay seated. Our brother, uh, Pastor Michael, always likes to say you can stand in your heart. Um, but follow along as I read. We're picking it up right where the pastor left off. John eleven forty five, the word of the Lord. So many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one of the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Erephim. And there he stayed with his disciples. <clears throat> now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so, that he might, or so they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, 
not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this time to be in your word. May we see a right way to respond to you and the wrong way to respond to you, but ultimately we will all respond to you, Lord. If there's anyone in here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, may today be the day of that salvation. Be with us, Lord. Be glorified. Amen. All right, we are eastbound and down. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there, so let's get this going. But I need you to notice something. This is the last time, um, and this is the third time, that Passover is mentioned in the book of John. This is the third and final time that Passover is mentioned. It's also known as Pesach, the Feast of Passover. This goes back to the book of Exodus when death passed over the homes that took the blood of an innocent lamb and put it over their doorframe. After that, Pharaoh let the Israelites go, only to change his mind. God opened up the Red Sea. Pharaoh pursued. The Israelites made it safely across the Red Sea. The Egyptians, not so much. The Israelites um, then, to remember all that God did for his people in the Exodus, um, a lamb is killed in commemoration of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. This feast is fulfilled by Jesus, by the way, because he is the perfect spotless lamb. Uh, Jesus also fulfills every other Jewish feast that is celebrated. Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, Feast of the First Fruits, Pentecost, Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Tabernacles, all fulfilled by Christ. I don't have time to go into all of them, uh, but if you're interested, there's a great book titled The Cradle, the Cross, and the Crown. I would highly encourage you to read that. But knowing that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Jewish feasts, knowing that Jesus performed signs so that you may believe, knowing that Jesus literally raised a dude back to life, how do you respond to that? And maybe you're like, yeah, I know all that. However, that's kind of a head knowledge. But your heart isn't in it. And if you're being honest, I think these texts can break, or I'm sorry, if I'm being honest, I think these texts uh, break down how people can respond to Jesus, and it's really, really simple. We're going to cover two ways and then the ultimate way. Uh, the first being that you can be an enemy of God. Right? That's what the text says. And I say this to the youth all the time. We don't follow Jesus because he makes life better. We follow Jesus because he's better than life. All right? But if you don't believe that, if you've never put your trust into Jesus, then you are considered an enemy of God. That's kind of a big deal. You must put your faith in the one who made it all. And you don't put your beliefs in a religion. And I believe we've jumbled all this up. There, there are many people around Jacksonville, around the United States, around the world. They go to church. They sing the songs. They listen to the preaching. They're at the church events, and they still miss relationship with the Lord. See, being a follower of Jesus is about relationship, not right position or doing the right things. There are many people who the world would say is living rightly, and they don't have a right relationship with Jesus. See, being a follower of Jesus is about right relationship. Think about this. The sons of thunder, uh, the uh, sons of Zebedee, James and John, two of the disciples, had their mommy go up to Jesus and ask to sit at his right and left hand because they were too afraid to do it. Why would she do that? Because she wanted her sons to have those positions. It wasn't about the relationship. It was about the power and the position. And the Christian faith is not about position. It's about relationship. But we have a strong tendency to mess this up. Humans typically care about power and position. How do I know this? 
Well, easily enough, the Pharisees. The Pharisees heard what Jesus did and how people were believing in Jesus. And instead of going to him with an open heart and open mind to hear him out, they go and run to the council. The council is the Sanhedrin. I always say that wrong. Blair always corrects me. The Sanhedrin, thank you. I'm, I am one semester away from a master's degree and still can't say that word correctly. Lord help me. But the Sanhedrin are the top religious officials of the day. They ran to the council because they're worried about their position among the people. Literally says that in the text. All right. So the council, the Sanhedrin, goes to the high priest. And the high priest that year happens to be Caiaphas. Interestingly enough, he was high priest for 18 years, but the Bible also mentions he happens to be that year too. And the Sanhedrin go to the priest, Caiaphas. Caiaphas is a Sadducee. Do you want to know the biggest difference between the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees? It's super cheesy. You'll remember it forever. I just heard a pastor use it, and I can't get it out of my head. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, and that is why they are sad, you see. <laughs> You're welcome for that. You'll remember that forever, ever, forever, ever. So they go to Caiaphas because they are worried everyone would believe in Jesus, and the Romans would take away their positions, their place, their nation. And what does Caiaphas do? He actually utters a divine prophecy. You know nothing at all. You are correct. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You are also correct. Jesus will die for the entire nation so that the nation would not perish. He just didn't realize how right he was. Jesus is going to die for the nation and all nations, for the Greek and the Jew, or the, the Jew and the Gentile, excuse me. He was talking about, uh, Caiaphas is talking about self-preservation here for the nation of Israel. But Jesus dies to take away the sins of the world for all nations. So they plan to kill Jesus. These men are more worried about their status, their position, than they are about knowing who Jesus actually is. And I think a lot of people can relate to that, actually. Because people get so comfortable in their lives that they don't want to disrupt their status quo that they don't want to put in the time and the effort to find out who Jesus really is because if they find out who Jesus really is, it changes everything about everything about everything in your lives. See, we live in a generation that can't define truth anymore. Like, it's all about feelings, right? We live in a generation that doesn't want to know absolute truths. We live in a generation that can't even define what a woman is. That is insane. Check this out. I read in the news... Um, about a week ago, I think, that a school had to put in a litter box in a classroom bathroom because a student identified as a cat. They wear the little cat ears, they randomly meow, they hiss, and they use the litter box. They do all the things. I had a few thoughts. Because if this kid's in my classroom, I need to know. If that kid decides to act even more like a little cat, and instead of using the litter box, goes into the classroom, am I allowed to beat the kid with the newspaper, rub their nose in it, and throw them out of the class? I need to know. That's a real, that seems reasonable to me. Because if I got to put up with that foolishness, my second thought, though, teachers don't get paid nearly enough to deal with this. <laughs> and lastly, why are we even entertaining this nonsense? We live in such a backwards society that it now goes against the most basic truths of God. There is man and there is woman, and God don't make mistakes. 
I don't care that you feel like a cat, Scooter. When they dig up your bones a thousand years from now, they aren't going to go, this person preferred to identify as a cat. It's male, it's female. I don't know, Jordan, that sounds pretty binary, because it is binary. It's man, and it's woman. I didn't write this. I just tell you the stuff that God wrote in it, okay? And it's not just the gender goobers that are not disciples of Christ. It's anyone not following God's word. And at one point, everyone in this room was an enemy of God. That is why the good news of the gospel is such very good news and why we need to share it for, to other people. Because while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Christ, uh, by the death of his son. Anyone that has not believed in their hearts and confessed with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord is an enemy of God. That means that sweet little old neighbor who lived their whole life as an atheist, the, a loved one who doesn't believe. There are people in this very church right now that are still enemies of God. And you can't fake it till you make it. You might have been baptized that it's a child, but you never really believed in Christ. Some people are Christian because they were raised that way. And it's part of the culture and the identity but they just don't have any relationship with Jesus. I heard a sermon not long ago about this. If you had never read the Bible before and you were told someone is going to betray Jesus in his circle, you would have never guessed it was Judas. Now, if you had to guess, you'd probably guess Judas, or excuse me, Peter. But think about it. Of the 12 disciples, you have Judas. Judas actually has a job among the disciples. He is the treasurer. He has a job. Jesus gave him a job to do. It's Judas, as we just read, that thought that he should have sold the perfume to feed the, feed the poor, right? And there's a thousand different Old Testament verses he could have used to back up his claim to feed the poor. And if you would have guessed, it probably would have been Peter. He literally calls Peter the devil at one point. Jesus calls Peter the devil. It's Peter that's always messing up. It's Peter always saying the wrong things at the wrong time. It's Peter that denies Jesus three times. You put Judas and Jesus in this church right now and no one can tell the difference. Judas could have supported any of that with Old Testament verses about the money, but his motive is self-centered. He looks good on the outside. He is a whitewashed tomb. He is clean on the outside, but on the inside he is dead. Outside he looks like he has a great relationship with Jesus. Inside, he is spiritually dead. And just think about this. When Jesus is having the Last Supper, he says, one of y'all is going to betray me. And none of the disciples could figure out who it was going to be. Judas played the part so well that the other 11 had no idea it was going to be him. Jesus knew other 11 didn't. That scares me to death. The people that don't believe are easy to spot, right? The people that claim to be atheists, they're super easy to spot. They're like vegans and uh, CrossFit people. You don't even have to ask, and they're going to tell you. All right? The ones that are in the church doing what looks to be the work of the church are impossible to differentiate from. And that scares me to death because it's a matter of the heart, and I cannot see inside your heart. You can be an enemy of God while pretending to be a part of his church. That is terrifying. But did you notice, going back to the text, that the chief priest didn't just stop at planning to kill Jesus? They also plan to kill Lazarus. Their hearts are so hardened that not only do they want to kill the Savior of the world, bless you, but they also want to kill the miracle. They would rather destroy evidence of God's glory, grace, and mercy and power than change their mind. That is not rational behavior. But sin produces irrational action. 
I talked about this with the youth not long ago. Anyone in here ever sinned? Okay, so for the people that raised your hand, good job. For those that didn't, you're already lying. So church is a great place for you. I'm a black-hearted, wretched sinner in need of a Savior. And praise the Lord, I was bought by the blood-bought grace of Jesus Christ. And we are covered in the blood of Jesus. We don't become sinless. We sin less. And we are all tempted by something. What I'm tempted by may not be the same thing you're tempted by. You leave a vegetable tray out, I'm not going to touch it. No problem. You keep your rabbit food. It's not tempting. You set up an ice cream bar and tell me not to touch it, and when you come back and the gallon of ice cream is missing, I'm your guy. All right? I've never met a flavor of ice cream I didn't like. It is the same way with sin. Some things are tempting to you that are not tempting to me. Sin is something that is tempting that takes away glory from God and gives it something to something that is never designed for. And before you do that thing, just hear me out. Say it out loud. Say what you're about to do out loud, the sin that you're about to commit. Whatever sin is in your life, whatever is tempting to you to not listen to God, say it out loud. Verbalize it. Seriously. Because then you will hear how ridiculous it truly sounds. Because the first words Judas ever speaks in the Gospels is found in John 12, 5. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 300 denarii is about a year's wages worth of product. It's really expensive. It's a lot of money. But the treasurer is not interested in helping the poor. Sounds good. It's a complete lie. He wanted the money for himself. He's like the Steve Miller band. He wanted to take the money and run. It's a great line, by the way. He didn't say the truthful part out loud because he did not want to be caught in his sin, and he might have actually heard how ridiculous it would have been. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to me? That doesn't really sound as great, right? See, many biblical scholars actually believe this is the incident that has Judas go betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He was with Jesus not because of the relationship. He was there because he thought he could get things out of Christ. And maybe if he is the Messiah, a lot of people in this time period thought that the Messiah would come back and overthrow Rome. He wanted the power. He wanted the position. He wanted the money. But once he thought he got all he could, he decides to betray our Lord. And all sin can be broken down into three categories. In 1 John 2.16, going to the King James Version, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. See, the lust of the flesh is everything that appeals to our physical appetite. All natural body desires are not inherently evil. The need for food, drink, sexual fulfillment. The devil can use these desires to enslave man, though. In this category of temptation, Satan uses internal devices to produce illicit, carnal passions. Then you have lust of the eyes. It is everything that appeals to the eyes' insatiable demands. In this category of temptation... Satan uses external attraction, whether it's inherently good, like owning a house or getting a car, or inherently bad, like a desire for a neighbor's wife, to produce covetousness. You see it, you want it, and you have to have it at all costs. And the third way is the pride of life, is everything that appeals to arrogance and pride. You believe you know better than God, is essentially how it breaks down. You know what's best in your own life. You don't need to be in the will of God because you got this. That is the pride of life. See, the, the Pharisees, the council, 
the chief priests, Caiaphas, Judas, were blinded by the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. They did not want to believe in the Messiah because if they did, it would have changed everything about their lives. So they stayed enemies of God. And that is one response. The other response is really simple. You can believe. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, believed in Jesus. They put their faith in Jesus. And once you put your faith in Jesus, your life has changed forever. If you look at chapter 12, verse 3, Mary pours that perfume on Jesus' feet, and then she proceeds to wipe his feet with her hair. With her hair. That is an act of great humility. This is not the, there's a different incident in the Bible where a woman of the night, a prostitute, um, goes into a Pharisee's house where Jesus is and does the same act. This is a different. Mary was a righteous woman, so don't get the two confused. But she pours out about the size of a soda can amount of perfume on Jesus' feet and takes her hair and mops it on him. This example of Mary has to make us consider what a right response to Jesus looks like. If we really see Jesus for who he is, the almighty, infinite God of the universe who took on human form, was fully God, was fully man, so that, if he, or so that he could die a brutal death in the place of his rebellious creatures, if we understand this beauty, how can we withhold anything from Jesus? And then the better question is, why would you want to withhold anything from Jesus? When was the last time you demonstrated extravagant love for the Lord? What does that even look like now? He's not physically present. We can't copy Mary's act by giving him tens of thousands of dollars worth of old spice. Her extravagant love was revealed in the fact that she didn't just respond to someone's command. She knew him and she loved him. And what she did was she took that vow and demonstrated her love. She didn't have to be asked. She just did it. She exhibits this rare combination of generosity and humility. She gives a tremendous gift with no desire for the spotlight. And how easily can our most sacrificial acts of love, how can they turn into a promotion for um, a platform for self-promotion? We see this perfectly by the two who attended the gathering. You have Judas, who does things for his own good and for himself, and Mary's love is selfless and authentic. Judas is a hypocrite. He is cold. He has a faithless heart. He is masked by a cloak of self-righteousness. If Mary is the example, then Judas is the warning. And what did Judas do when faced with the decision to give up his stuff or give up Jesus? Stuff wins. Sorry, Jesus. Mary, on the other hand, viewed possessions as an opportunity to bless Jesus. How are you viewing possessions? If you lost your job, if you lost your house, if you lost your car, could you still say it is well with my soul? And if you're thinking, nah, I don't know about that one. That would be a tough pill to swallow. Then I suggest you take the time and examine where you are out of line with God on. Because in the Old Testament, Job literally lost everything. Like his own wife is telling him to curse God and die. But he famously said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If everything is taken from you, would God still be enough? Because all this stuff is temporary. You can't take any of it with you. In fact, the only thing that you can take to heaven with you are other people. And to be a believer in Christ means to be a disciple of Christ, and part of being a disciple of Christ means you're making disciples from every tribe, nation, and tongue. 
That doesn't just mean hopping on an airplane and going to India and eating really suspect curry chicken for 10 days and sharing the gospel to men and women over there. And just a quick side note, Indian food is terrible. All right? It is. I ate things over there they said was chicken. There ain't no way it was chicken. Everything's hot. I don't know why they have to make breakfast spicy. All right? Like, can we not just get, like, some normal cereal, like some Lucky Charms or something? I don't know why everything has to be hot. But just be praying for our mission team. They are on their route back. Uh, pray that they don't have any delays. Um, last time I went, there was a very long delay, and we got held up for the night in Paris. And my wife and Miss Misty and Miss Nora were all bummed that we got to be in Paris for the night, and all we wanted to do was go home. But I'm in the most romantic place in the world with Pastor Micah and Brother Mike. It's very romantic looking at the Eiffel Tower with them. And fun fact, I bought a woman's jacket while I was over there because I don't speak French. Yeah, true story. Because all I had, I had the same outfit for the last 48 hours on. It was, it, just pray for him. Moving on. Moving on. So it doesn't mean just going off and doing mission trips. It also means sharing the gospel to people in your area of influence. If your grown children aren't in church, invite their butt to church. Be annoying about it. If your grandchildren aren't in church, offer to take them to church because the parents probably want an hour or two away from their kids. 50 years ago, 90% of the United States identified as Christian. Today, 64% of people living in the United States identify as Christian. They estimate in 50 years that 34% of people living in this country will identify as Christian at this current rate. Now, that percentage also includes the people who never come to church, never pray, never read the Bible, might show up on Christmas and Easter, uh, Christers as I affectionately call them. They never give anything to God, but they're going to say they're Christian because they grew up in a Christian home. That is not the kind of belief you need to have in Jesus. I'm not saying you have to read your Bible to be a Christian. I'm not saying you have to be at church to read your Bible, or to, you have to be at church to be a Christian, that you have to pray to be a Christian, or that you have to give to be a Christian. But all those things really, really, really help. Okay, Because if I treated my wife like some of people treat a relationship with God, I'd have never had the opportunity to marry my wife. Like if we were, when we were first dating, think about this, if we were first dating, I never called her, if I never visited her, if I never spent any time with her, if I never took her on dates, if I never shared things with her, and I didn't continue to build and work on a relationship and connection with her, she would not be my wife today. I just couldn't have asked her to be my girlfriend one day and ghosted her for 10 years and expect to be in a relationship with her. It doesn't work like that, Scooter. Now, don't think too deeply into these type of metaphors either because they break down pretty easily. But understand a saving faith is the start of an eternal relationship with the Lord. And a relationship with the Lord is not always easy. There are going to be times in your life where it's going to be difficult to pray, where it's going to be difficult to read. It's going to be difficult to understand why you're going through something. And the older I get, the more I realize nothing is ever easy, especially on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. Anything can go wrong on a Sunday morning will go wrong for people who are going to church. I don't know why it's just true. Well, I do know why, but it's just true. Whoever said easy like Sunday morning never went to church. Then you look on social media and everyone is having a great time at the beach or tailgating at a football game. And I got my kid in a headlock making him brush his teeth and comb his hair trying to get to church on time. It's not the same. 
That's a joke, by the way. Like, I don't really, like, don't email me. All right, that's a joke. But you get my point. It may not be easy, but it's worth it. Right? Christ doesn't offer an easy life. Christ never offered your best life now. He offers the abundant life in him. The prize of Christianity isn't avoiding hell. That's a byproduct. It isn't health or wealth or worldly things. It's that you get to be in relationship with the creator of all things. You get to be in relationship with the Lord for the rest of eternity. If you only believe. That's it. All you have to do. If you just believe. If you will fully trust in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can have an eternal relationship with God. You can believe. You don't have to stay an enemy of God. I pray that you will put... Put your trust in him because, and this is the final truth. You got two options. My dad always said you got two options in life. And the way he did it was you can do it with a whipping or without a whipping. But here you can bow or you can bow. You are going to bow. Whether you realize it or not, whether you want to or not, you have options. You can bow now or you can bow later. Because every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can bow on this side of eternity and get to spend the rest of eternity with the Lord. Or you can bow on the other side of eternity and spend an eternity in hell. Again, I just, I just tell you what the book says. Because that's a hard truth. Because how are you going to bow? You don't have to go through life without a relationship with the Lord. In fact, this life was never meant to be a life apart from God. Sin made that a reality. And Jesus dying on the cross, he made that life, that sin took away a possibility for anyone that would call upon the name of the Lord. You don't have to fully understand to fully believe. But if you believe that what Jesus did, that he came to live a perfect life, he came to die on the cross, but according to the Bible, he could not stay dead. It was impossible. He arose three days later, and after being witnessed by over 500 people, ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. If you believe that accounted for you, then you can have eternal life with God. Because I got news for you. He's coming back. And how are you going to respond to Jesus? What are you doing with him? Because he is calling each and every one of us this morning to do something. The first step of obedience in the Christian life is to put the yes on the table and trust that Jesus Christ is Lord. I pray that you will. That's all I got this morning. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me. I'll ask the worship team and that pretty new uh, worship member to call them on up and sing a song. Lord, I, I thank you. Lord, I thank you that you offer us the abundant life in you, that you are the only way to the Father. You're the only way to heaven. And we, the goal isn't heaven, Lord. The goal is relationship with you. And if there's anyone in here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, change their heart and let them say yes. Let them see a real need for you because you are our only real need in this world. Everything else fades away. Everything else is vanity, Lord, but you are the only thing that matters. Be with us as we finish this time, Lord. We love you, we need you, and we praise you. Amen.